0: Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. This is John Perrine, your host, and we are here at the end, the end of yet another study, the end of our study of the Song of Songs. This is episode six. If you haven't listened to all of them, if you missed some, feel free to go back, check them out. If you haven't listened to our previous series, feel free to go back and check out our study on the book of Job, where we lean into the theme of suffering, our study on revelation, where we lean into the politics of Jesus. And I can assure you this will not be the last study that we do. We've got a number of other really exciting things, cooking with the burning word. But at this point, I just want to say thank you for journeying with us. It has been life-giving for me to dive into this book and to wrestle with deep questions that we need to ask of the scriptures. Where do we turn when it comes to intimacy? Where do we look when we try to make sense of our sexual confusion in our cultural moment? How does God give us a vision that could point beyond all of our present confusion and struggles and pain and show us how sex might actually be leading us back to God? That has been the hope for this study. I'm so glad you've come along. This episode, the Song of Songs, ends with a finale to meet all finales. In fact, I would dare to say this closing chapter of the Song of Songs contains one of the high points in scriptures, perhaps one of the best articulations of love that you can find across any form of literature is a moment to lean in and to listen to what the Song of Songs wants to teach us. So without further ado, let's dive in. So here we are at the end of our search And really, of course, that's meant to be tongue in cheek. We're not at the end of anything. In fact, if we've learned anything about sex in the search of intimacy through studying the Song of Songs, what you begin to discover is that sex isn't some sort of destination that you arrive at. In fact, if you really think about sex, when does sex ever satisfy? When does sex ever end? When is there a sense of culmination or full completeness in one's sexual journey? If that's the case, the place that I want to start is to acknowledge every one of us has a story of our search for intimacy. Every single one of us has a story when it comes to our search. This is my pastoral heart coming out for you. But if I could sit with you, if we could sit in the car as you drive into work, if I could sit over a cup of coffee and listen to your life, what I know we could uncover is that every single one of us, at the core of our being, in fact, one of the closest, most intimate, vulnerable, and yet powerful places that we have either met God, glimpsed God, been drawn to God, or been horribly harmed, injured, or maimed by our experiences is in our search for intimacy. And specifically, in the stories that each of us have when it comes to sexuality. So the truth of the matter is, you have a story, I have a story, we all have a story, and the Bible, instead of trying to control your story, instead of trying to undermine your story or dismiss your story, the Bible gives you this song to help you interpret and to redirect your story wherever it's been, wherever it's going. So I want to come into this final episode holding your story with you holding my story and in holding our stories what we inevitably will find are that all of us at Some point in our stories began with some form of innocence We began with some naivete when it came to sex We all started in this place in which the world was open to us love existed and was possible if only we could find it and yet From innocence, all of us moved into the experience of pain when it came to our sexualities. I have yet to meet a person who's being truly honest with themselves, who did not have some painful messages, some painful encounters, all the way to the extremes which we've been holding throughout this whole study, the extremes of abuse that take place more frequently than we want to acknowledge, the pains of sexual manipulation, of terrible encounters, of disappointment and heartache when it came to trying to find intimacy, trying to see love blossom in our lives, and discovering instead the horrendous scarring and maiming and pain that comes when love is pulled apart. Yet if All of us have stories of innocence and all of us at some point encountered pain. The hope, as you've been listening to this study, if I can give you any hope, it's the hope of possibility. The Song of Songs is trying to paint a picture for you, a picture to remind you that any of us could be this lover. Any of us could step into her place. I love here that it is a woman, that this is a great moment for us male readers of the Bible to step into the feminine invitation of pursuit, the feminine stirring and arousal of desire, the feminine longing and draw towards beauty, because all of us, on some level, if we are going to find intimacy, we have to become this lover. We have to become the one who allows her heart to be stirred within her, who allows her desire to be, to kiss her beloved, who desperately goes looking for her beloved even in the middle of the night. All of us must inhabit this song if we are going to find intimacy. And maybe even more importantly, if you've been catching any of the deep themes that I've been pressing into through this study, it's that it's not just intimacy in terms of a marriage or a sexual partner that's at stake here. It's intimacy because At the heart of the Song of Songs, we're meant to understand the impulse, the physiological yearning, the emotional need each of us have for intimacy is actually hardwired in us as a deep existential yearning for God. And if we don't pay attention to that yearning, we're not going to find God. If we don't pay attention to love, even for all the ways that love gets twisted and distorted in our lives then we are going to miss the God of love. The God who gave us love. The God who, when we come to know this God, is in fact love. The God who connects and binds all of our love on this earth in himself. That is the God that we say we worship. That is the God who came to us in Jesus Christ. And that is in fact the good news, the gospel of God, that in Jesus Christ we can know love. We can have union with God and find the intimacy that sex was only ever just a signpost pointing toward. That is the theology of sex that we've been wrestling with in the Song of Songs. Now I have two interesting final cultural tidbits to reflect on with you. The first is a TikTok trend. If I'm talking about stories of sexuality, my wife pointed out to me recently that there's been this trend on TikTok. TikTok is the great petri dish of what's actually taking place on the ground of culture. And of course, it's a sort of terrifying black hole to fall into. But in TikTok, this trend has been hashtag my first time in which TikTok users share stories, reflect upon their first sexual encounters. Now, if I wanted to be a sociologist, I really would start doing some recording and reporting. There, I'm sure, are some fascinating data points to uncover as we reflect on, as we hear from the voice of literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are sharing about their first sexual encounters. And yet, the trend that stood out most to my wife, as she was sort of talking me through this phenomenon is that so often when someone shared about their first time, there was a balancing act taking place in which on the one hand, they almost always acknowledged that something uncomfortable, something strange, something goofy was taking place because it was, of course, their first time. They didn't know really what sex involved. They didn't know what sex would entail. They had never had sex before. And so something sort of unexpected or uncomfortable or disconcerting was revealed to them when they actually experienced sex. But the other impulse that kept coming up in this hashtag was that people continued to insist that whoever their first timer was, as long as in the moment they cared for each other, then that was a good first time. If if in the moment they didn't care for each other, so if there was some sort of manipulation or coercion or abuse, those were the tragic stories of my first time that often did not get as much responsiveness. But the main sort of thrust of how people were sharing about their first time is that they wanted to be clear, they weren't expecting that their first time would involve some sort of great love story. They weren't expecting that their first time was going to involve some sweeping fairy tale. Instead, as long as the person sort of cared for them in the moment, then that would be enough. And as my wife and I were watching this, as we were reflecting on it, and even as we held both of our own stories, our own experiences across the church and pastoral work, my wife in therapy, as we were holding all of the great love stories, the the real sweeping arcs that stirred both of us uh, from movies to novels to music, when you hear that culminating whimper of TikTok, that As long as you care for each other in the moment, in your first time, that's enough. I mean, I understand. I understand how much shame almost all of us have around our first time, how much shame the church has put on those who have had sex outside of marriage, how much disappointment often exists in actual sex as opposed to whatever the sort of stylized, fantasized, pornographied version of sex was that we were exposed to. But I just have to come back here to the scriptures to say, I think there's so much more waiting for us than simply to be cared for in the moment. I don't think that's what the Song of Songs is getting at at all. And when we get into these final visions, these final pictures that the finale of the Song of Songs is going to give us, I just want to extend this invitation. I know nobody from TikTok is probably doing the heavy lifting of listening to this podcast. But I want us as the church to continue to witness in this present moment that there is more for sex than this. There is more for love than this. Intimacy was designed for something deeper than a vision that says, if you care for me in the moment, let's join our bodies together. I think without any sort of shame, there's this need for us to reclaim the power and the longing and the hopefulness of what sex can actually be. In that vein, there's one other resource I want to put in front of you that I've been trying to figure out how to weave into this study. I just came across it this year. It was just released this year. It was a book by Sheila Gregory, and then her daughter and another woman, I think named Diane Landbach, contributed to it. But Sheila Gregory has put together this book that she called The Great Sex Rescue the great sex rescue and in her work there's probably others like it her main issue is that evangelical culture has had this very confused message around sexuality and the confusion in their message is that evangelical culture has told everyone first you absolutely have to remain pure if you fail in your purity before marriage well then sexuality is going to be ruined that's one message, and while men seem to not struggle with that message as much, that message has wrecked a lot of havoc on women's perception, especially that so many women in Christian circles come into their sex lives and marriage with this sort of shameful cloud lingering over them. And the other message that evangelicalism has said is that when it comes to sex and marriage, it's really about the sense in which a man is going to struggle with lust his whole life. And so a wife, a good wife, a loving wife is going to be there to meet the man's needs sexually, to sort of take care of their husbands. And really tragically in her work, she does a sweeping literature review of the most popular evangelical books on sex and marriage over the last 20, 30 years. And as she does it, she just shows over and over and over again, tragically how there actually is this message that has been told to Christian couples that men have this great intense sexual need. They're going to struggle with lust. They probably already did struggle with lust or they are struggling with lust. And so it's the woman's job to take care of her husband, to help her husband out, to make sure that she satisfies all her husband's sexual needs. And what Sheila Gregory asks as she goes through this review and as they did a lot of sociological survey where they were interviewing thousands and thousands of women for sexuality in their Christian marriages, what they uncovered over and over and over again is that women who were living with this pressure to satisfy their husbands really weren't enjoying sexuality in their marriages. But the women who were actually enjoying sex most in their marriages felt most mutual, most free and most trusting of their husbands to say, yeah, you know, we we may or may not have sex right now. We may or may not get to sex. But in the freedom of our marriage in the freedom that my husband has even given me to be connected to my own body and to enjoy sexuality together with him, that is actually what's allowing me to have the most pleasure, the most satisfaction, the most delight and the hope of Sheila Gregory's work that was just immensely encouraging as I've been leaning into as much literature as I can consume around Christianity, sexuality, visions of sexuality, the hope Sheila puts forward is that it's not actually that hard to enjoy a healthy Christian sex life. In fact, a lot of their research was revealing that Christian marriages have so much potential for being this actual vision of love. I mean, in some ways, to enter into a Christian marriage is the great love story, is it not? This, Of course this makes sense to us. If you're a Christian, the Christian marriage is where love can truly flourish. It's this monogamous, dedicated, covenanted, mutual belonging, I am my beloved, my beloved is mine, and as we move into this vision, sexuality can flourish. I always remember the How I Met Your Mother joke where the two men who were single were always saying, competing, hey, we're having the best sex, the most sex, we, we have the best sex life, Barney, Ted, Barney, Ted, and, and Marshall, who was dedicated to Lily, who had the true great romance through How I Met Your Mother. Marshall has this one evening where he comes back to the bar and he had calculated how many times he had sex with his wife compared to how few times the two men who were single were having non-committed sex. And as he calculated it out, it was something mind-blowing. You know, thousands and thousands. I've had sex thousands and thousands and thousands of times, and you guys haven't, so I'm having the better sex life. And the show was very secular and clear that this was all laughable, and look at how silly and sad it is that Marshall's trying to defend this. And yet, the point that Sheila Gregory makes is that, in a healthy, flourishing sex life in a marriage, it's possible, it's possible that the best sex, the best life of intimacy you could ever have could take place through a Christian marriage. So I'm holding these two tensions before you, realizing that our stories are gonna fall on massive sweeping continuums. Your story might involve everything from abuse to trauma to broken marriages, to hurting communities, to fights with your kids, to a second or third marriage that actually worked out, to maybe you not even knowing yet, Uh, This could be said to me, not even knowing yet where your story will take you, where marriage and sexuality and intimacy will go. Maybe in your singleness, you will in fact end up getting married. Maybe in your marriage, you will in fact find yourself in a few years' time alone, whether you wanted it or not, whether you needed it or not, whether you knew it was coming or not. In this continuum, as we map this cultural moment, the tension between, on the one hand, a TikTok vision that's saying, as long as you care for me in the moment, it's enough within an evangelical messaging that says, marriage is a duty, go fulfill your duty, good Christian soldier. In between these two, I think the Song of Songs is given to us as a sign of hope, even as Sheila Gregory is arguing in her book, The Great Sex Rescue, that in this monogamous, covenanted marriage, that we can find the fullness of God dwelling in the intimacy that is possible between A husband and wife, that the intimacy that is possible there can be a sign out even to our community. And of course, underneath that intimacy in a marriage, there is in fact the even deeper possibility that a person living in intimacy with God can become an even greater and truer sign. Because what else is our earthly marriage pointing to than the intimacy and union that all of us can have, married or not, in God? I want to start practically because we're going to move into the text and we've got one last chance to let the text speak. I've likely stepped on your toes at some point in this series and I've likely stirred your heart at some other point. Why else would you make it all the way to episode six? So, in moving to the text, how does the text navigate this tension? What is the great sex rescue that the text offers us in its vision for love? Let me give you three themes, three pictures. I'm going to preach just a little bit, but I hope that the three pictures can help guide you through this final narrative thread in Song of Songs, chapter 8. So as we look at the text this episode, I'm just going to begin at the very end of chapter 7 to give us some context as we move into chapter 8. If you remember the sweep of where we've been, we've been moving back and forth between these two wasps, these descriptions where the woman describes adoringly, the beloved, and then the beloved describes the lover adoringly as well at the beginning of chapter seven. The song sort of ends in chapter seven, verse 10 with, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. And then it moves into this mini narrative song, just a mini narrative sweep that's going to set up chapter eight. It says this in verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our door are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. Okay, so the woman seems to be speaking here. And as she's speaking, she's inviting the beloved once more into themes that have now become familiar as we've worked through the Song of Songs. They're moving out from the city into the fields. That word for villages could actually mean countryside. So let us go lodge in the aloneness and the seclusion of the countryside. You see how intimacy can flourish in the aloneness between the lover and the beloved. As they go out, they're going to explore the vineyards that both could be a literal, wonderful scene for a date. It also could be very euphemistically used to connote sexuality, as it often has been throughout the songs. And they're seeing whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. This is the Song of Songs at its best, weaving together natural imagery to highlight the beauty and wonder of delight in sharing in sexual intimacy together. And then the song closes with this note of the mandrakes, which is kind of an interesting legend in the ancient Near East. If you recall in the book of Genesis, this is sort of a deep cut from Genesis, but Jacob's wife, Rachel, is having trouble conceiving. And so Leah sort of does this deal with her where she offers her mandrakes. Botanists have pointed out mandrakes aren't actually an aphrodisiac. They don't actually help you conceive but the commentary I was looking at on this noted that mandrakes can be shaped somewhat like genitalia, which is why they probably were associated with fertility. Just interesting stuff to give you to note in verse 13 that the mandrakes are giving forth fragrance. There's this sense of possibility and fertility and new life where all the choice fruits, literally they say new as well as old, are laid up for you, my beloved. This is how the song sort of works. It moves from invitation to intimacy. It gives you scenes that draw out your desire, that draw you into the love that's being shared. But in chapter 8, you remember chapters aren't actually there in the original text. We artificially inserted chapters. There's probably this connection and flow between the two songs, even as they're a bit disjointed. What's going to happen in chapter 8 verse 1 is that tension re-emerges again. There's a sense of intimacy becoming separated or maybe longing now being stirred, or maybe we've just started a brand new song. But whatever the case is, in chapter 8, we find this strange expression to our ears where the woman is going to say this. This is verse 1 to 4. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me i adjure you o daughters of jerusalem that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases we find some tension here where the lover is longing for what sounds so bizarre to us that the beloved could be like a brother in the ancient world it was in the ancient world it was almost impossible to display affection for someone in public especially If you were only dating or engaged, but even if you were husband or wife. And so the sense could be, as uncomfortable as it makes us, that there's this cultural analogy being used where the songs is playing on this affectionate term in the Hebrew of brother and sister that has meant almost like deep friend. There's really no other word for it for someone of the opposite sex in the ancient world. And so she's playfully connoting the idea that if only he was a deep, friend like a brother who it would be acceptable if you saw your brother to go up and greet them with a kiss on the cheek. That's what she is longing for, that she could display the full depths of her passion, that she could bring him back into the safety of her mother's house, that in that safe, intimate space, he could once more drink the fruit of their love and We're told that his left hand is under her head, his right hand embraces me. This is the expression from chapter 2 when clearly the couple are united together in intimacy. And yet this very sensual, powerful, evocative longing of the woman is going to culminate in verse 4 with her warning once again, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is our last pass at expressing the warning That love is so powerful. If it's entered into carelessly, if it's entered into too quickly, then love is going to demand things of you. It's going to stir things up in you that you're not going to be able to resist or stop. And so be careful. Be careful when you're approaching the power of love. Yet, I've been building in this sweep of chapter seven to chapter eight to give us the first image of our three images that comes in verse five. So I'm going to sit with this one with you. Here's what verse. 5 says. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? If you're following the literary movement of the songs, we're clearly shifting scenes here. It's really tough to figure out who's speaking at certain points in the songs, but many suggest that at this moment we've actually switched back to the chorus. So if this song is being performed in the royal courts. If, if the lover and beloved were there in nature, and then they're back sort of separated in the city, we can almost picture the drama playing out in our heads. We've now shifted scenes once more, and the chorus are standing there, and they're about to proclaim here in verse five, this sweeping vision that's going to move towards the highlight of the whole book. But in order to get us there, they look out, this chorus does, and sees something coming up from the wilderness. Do you remember episode three? The wilderness is always such an important image in the scriptures. Whenever you hear the wilderness, you have to think Exodus imagery. You have to think the people wandering in the wilderness. Here, the sense seems to be the couple coming out of the isolation, but not even necessarily the terrible isolation that was taking place for them in the wilderness. But perhaps, The intimacy that only isolation in a wilderness could provide. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, or if you look closely at the book of Hosea, there's this theme in the Old Testament where the people wandering in the wilderness, while it was in fact punishment, while it was in fact because of their lack of faith, what you find from God's perspective as he reflects on the wilderness is that it was actually the place where God was wooing Israel. He'll say in Hosea, I drew you out of Israel to teach you to walk in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8, he's going to say, I wooed you in the wilderness. I drew you with the bonds of my hesed, my covenant faithful kindness. So the wilderness is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, the wilderness might be the very context you need to meet God in intimacy or to meet your beloved in intimacy. The real power of this image is going to come in the second half of the verse. Did you catch what it says? Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? From a literal standpoint, the chorus is looking out and they see this couple emerging from the wilderness. The beloved is there strong, solid, firm. On him leans the lover. The woman is leaning on his arm. It begs the natural question, why is she leaning? What is she leaning for? And as you ponder that question, there's all kinds of different answers that could be given. I mean, she might be leaning because she just loves her beloved. She loves the time she just spent with him. She continues to lean on him as an expression of the depth of connection and comfort that her beloved offers. Or she could be leaning on him because the time in the wilderness was a challenge, because there have been painful scars that have been surfaced, struggles that have been overcome, and now in her weakness, in her vulnerability, she leans on her beloved. I can't help but love the invitation here, the invitation of the songs that invites us. Are you willing to lean on the beloved? Are you willing to lean? To lean is inherently an act of trust. It is inherently an act of dependency. And if we're being honest, we all hate being dependent. We do not want to be dependent. We want to remain independent, autonomous, and free. And so in our love, so many of us struggle in getting to the true hearts of intimacy in our relationships because we really don't want to have to lean on someone. We don't want to have to make ourselves vulnerable. We don't want to be that person who has deep needs, be that person who's always pulling down, sort of dragging on the person standing beside them. And if we're being honest, the other side of leaning is that it does costs something to the person who's being leaned on. When was the last time you had someone lean on you? Probably not recently because if you get leaned on, it's heavy. It becomes cumbersome. I mean, there's a certain sympathy to be said here that the person who's enduring the leaning is made fully uncomfortable by the additional weight that they have to bear on their bodies. And yet, notice the invitation. I told you I would preach. This is it. The Lord wants you to lean on the beloved. The Lord is inviting you to lean when it comes to your love. In fact, you will not be able to find intimacy if you don't have the courage to lean. And of course, the same goes true that if you are not willing to be leaned on, then you will not find the intimacy that is available in love. This is the invitation of God. For you to be someone who can be leaned on, you must first learn to lean on the beloved. To lean by naming your vulnerabilities, by recognizing your failures, by noticing the shortcomings, the broken pathways in your brain when it comes to relationships, and to learn to start leaning to start trusting, to start depending. You know, for as difficult a task as leaning can sometimes be, as difficult as it can be to support your spouse when they need to lean on you. I was struck as I was thinking about this image about my two-year-old daughter, who right now is in that wonderful toddler stage of onriness She is feisty, she is spirited. This moment often happens in the mornings if I'm the one putting her clothes on her, where she, without thinking about it, As I'm going to take clothes off and his limbs are sort of flailing all around, she'll have this moment where she just leans on me, puts her arms out, catches her from falling. Or as I'm slowly sliding her trousers on, she knows she's going to have to lean. And yet she does it unthinkingly. She does it without questioning. She's not there asking, Are are you going to be okay, Dad, if I lean on you? Do I have permission to lean on you? Has consent been established here? Am I going to bother you? If I have to lean on you, is this going to be a problem if every day when I get dressed, I'm going to need to lean? None of those thoughts enter her head. Instead, she just leans because she knows that's what love offers. Love invites us to lean. That's our first image. Love always leans. So what about our second image then? I've been hyping that there's this verse that is going to capture love in a way that exceeds almost any other description, not just in all of the Bible, but really in all literature. I know that's a big claim, and so here's where I'm going to try to back it up. This is a line of poetry found in the Song of Songs that almost all commentators will tell you is the heart and the center of the songs. This is what the songs has been building towards. In fact, up to this point, the songs hasn't taught us much about love. It's been more content to describe love, but here. In its poetic turn, the songs is going to try to articulate to us the love that has been beating throughout each song in the songs. So what is that love? What does the song of songs say? Let me read you verse 6 and verse 7, and then we'll break it down. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So let me take you in to this poem and show you its many multi-hued wonders first in verse six, we're told as the woman speaks, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. In the ancient world, seals would be stamped into property, into cattle, into letters, and the seal was the signet you had to identify who you are. In fact, the seal would be very equivalent today to our signature. That's what's happening when you seal something, You're stamping on it that this belongs to you, that this is associated with you, that this identifies you. And so it was often common for people to wear their seals because you'd only have one. You couldn't risk your seal being stolen or used by someone else. Your one seal would often be carried on your person, either in sort of travel sack or a bag or something along those lines. So here, the woman is going to say as the first insight into love that she longs for her beloved to set her as a seal upon his heart. Now the word heart, the lev, is not just the physical organ of the heart. In the Hebrew language, lev is the center of your being, it is the essence of who you are. We would use terms like identity or your mind or your consciousness. In the Hebrew, the heart is at the core, the very true depths. In Hebrew, the heart there is right at the center. And so she's saying, I want to seal. I want to be identified with. I want to be imprinted upon your very heart so that in essence, you cannot be identified apart from me that when you are identified, my seal is right there with yours. In fact, your seal has been altered in your heart by the inscription of me upon you. Isn't that stunning? She follows it up with the parallelism of saying, as a seal upon your arm, carry me right there with you. Carry me as a seal Right there in your hand, so that when you go to identify yourself, so that when you go to involve yourself in the world, I am with you. I am interwoven in my being with your being. Now, the point of being a seal is that we should, in some ways, be a little shocked. Our hair should be blown back at this point at how passionately and fiercely the desire of the woman is to be associated, to be so intimately interwoven with the beloved. Yet, she is going to justify why her desire is so deep, why her passion is so strong, why her love is so permanent in the following expression. So she's going to continue, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Now on the surface, the English rendering of the Hebrew here actually lets the verse down. Because in the Hebrew, a couple of things that would jump out at you. First, her claim that love is as strong as death doesn't jive with what the rest of the ancient world would have believed. This would actually be a rather extraordinary claim. Even the book of Ecclesiastes is going to note that death is final. Death is permanent. In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11 12, he's going to say, I see that time and chance happen to them all. Indeed, no one knows his time like fish that are entangled in an evil net and like Caught in a snare. So people are ensnared in an evil time when death suddenly falls on them. Death is permanent. Death is a fixture in all of our lives. Death is not reversible. In fact, there is no power that is stronger than death in this earthly world. It doesn't matter how much medicine you uncover, it doesn't matter how good our technology gets. You cannot escape death in the ancient world. Knew that they believed that they saw that every day, and yet the lover here is going to extraordinarily claim, at least in my English rendering, that love is strong as death. That love, the power, the force, the energy of love is equally powerful to death. Now, this gets even more extraordinary for two reasons. One, death was not just a fixture in the ancient world, death was often personified as a god. So, in Ugaritic mythology the god's name is Mot which quite literally is the word Mot death whose power is such that Mot in the storytelling of the Ugaritic myths will temporarily defeat and swallow Baal who represents fertility the power of life so in Ugaritic in ancient understanding in the mythologies of their day it was always clear that death was even stronger than life because death could swallow up life yet here The woman is controversially suggesting that love is strong as death. And in fact, if you look more closely, if you check some other English renderings, it's more likely in the Hebrew that what's really going on here is that she's actually making one step further in her claim. She says love is stronger than death. She believes love is going to conquer death. Now that sounds, when you say it all by itself, as sort of a naive, fanciful notion, but when you put it in the context of this poem, the claim is a statement of faith. It is a statement of hope. It is a belief that love is so important, so precious, so powerful, that the very essence of love could actually overcome the true and definitive power that we still have not been able to conquer of death itself. But she's going to clarify this love even further. Check out how beautiful this poem continues to be. She's going to sweepingly say, jealousy is fierce as the grave. So she's explaining, how could love be stronger than death? How could that power be so intense? Well, she says jealousy, this word that connotes the fierceness of love, the protectiveness of love. And our association with jealousy is often negative, particularly in English. We assume jealousy to be a... Heady sign of immaturity, a vindictive sign of someone being overprotective of what they believe to be theirs. But if you think about the root of jealousy, particularly as the Hebrew Bible would describe jealousy as a characteristic of God, a fierce protectiveness of the love that God shares with and for his people, a love that is so passionate that it not only will pursue, but it will also defend its love against any forces that would threaten it. This jealousy, it's fierce, it's as formidable and foreboding as the grave, as Sheol itself. What the poet is doing is painting this image that we can actually intuitively resonate with, that longing to want to be so closely associated that we are set as a seal upon the heart of our beloved. The sense in which love, the true essence of love, is actually so passionate, it's so fierce, That even the force of death itself would not be able to resist it. Yet the poet is not done. This is where the images really come together. They say in the final piece of verse six, Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now, once more, if I can take you into this, there's so much here. Its flashes are flashes of fire. Love, as the Hebrew is saying, Is like lightning. That's what the flashes, flashes of fire looked like to the ancient world. It's not only the flames that are leaping up from a burning bonfire, you can actually almost picture on those fearsome nights of a storm the way in which lightning strikes and flashes against the ground. I don't know if you remember the last time you stood out in a thunderstorm. There is something awe inspiring, fearful, yes, but awe inspiring as you see the power, the force. The clap of literal flames being tossed from heaven and igniting in the fierceness and passion of the love that you share for another. This is what love is being pictured as. It is like lightning crackling across the sky. That second half, the very last line in verse 6, is going to say that these flashes of lightning are the very flame of the Lord. Now, some other English translations call this the very flame of flames or the mightiest of flames. You again get the sense, picture the biggest bonfire you have ever seen. But there's a reason why this translation calls it the very flame of the Lord. You should even have a footnote if you look at your Bible that's going to tell you this is, this is the other option. It's because the word here is interestingly constructed in the Hebrew to be the flame of Yah. The flame of Yah. And so it's hard to know what exactly the Hebrew is trying to do here. Some hesitate to describe this as the flame of Yahweh because the word is not fully completed. Yet most scholars are going to point out it's interesting if you go back through the Song of Songs, you will notice that God and God's name are not uttered throughout the Song of Songs. Isn't that kind of interesting? If you think a little bit harder about it, the reason why this probably happened, was that Israel was being very protective, that in their context, where a lot of other religions worshipped their God through practices of sexuality, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, was always very clear in his boundariedness that worship of God was not meant to be facilitated in a temple setting through sexual practices. So on one level, the Song of Songs is protecting itself from over-involving God In the act of sex, so that our worship does not become focused or channeled through sex. And yet, here in this culminating moment, we find the hint, the essence of God's name, almost still slightly protective to clarify and prevent any sort of confusion from taking place. Yet, still, the Lord, as we have argued through this whole study, has been lingering in the background of this song. I mean, the Lord has been there. We have not been able to escape all of these themes of everything from wilderness to Eden to intimacy to desire to beauty. God is there at the heart of our search for intimacy. And so to me, it only makes sense that the one appearance of God in the Song of Songs would come in its culminating image and God would be associated with the flame, the flame of love, the mightiest of flames. So if my first image for us was that love always leans, my second image that the Song of Songs gives us is that love always burns. Love always burns. Sit with this picture of a flame for just a minute and sit with it, considering what it means that the flame of love, the flashes of fire are actually rooted in and connected to the very flame of Yah, the flame of our Lord, the flame of Yahweh. What I think the Song of Songs is saying is that love is a passionate and potent power. Love, much like fire, is going to burn with heat and intensity. And when you consider fire, when you consider fire, even in a world like ours that is so separated and removed by technology from many of the struggles of the ancient world, what you realize is that we cannot survive without fire. We cannot survive without it. We cannot get by without the heat that it offers, without its generative force, without the way in which fire is going to transform the substances it touches. It doesn't just consume objects, it also heats them, it lifts them up, it, changes things. Water becomes air. Ice becomes liquid. Substance turns into ash. This is how the world is transformed, through the power of fire. And that power is what's happening in our love. That That's what happens when love touches someone. That's why love is so intense. That's why we can't get over love. It's why we keep looking for it and spending our money on it and creating environments where love can flourish. It's why We're fighting politically so much over love, why we can't help but invest ourselves in these culture wars as we battle back and forth over what love is and what love means. And yet, of course, in the image of a flame, you find that love can be very dangerous. Love can be just as dangerous as a fire. It can take off much as a wildfire does. It can consume that which it was not intended to consume. It can burn and leave permanent scars. On our hearts as we attempt to reach out and touch the flame of love. And yet, yet the flame of Yahweh, the flame of God is actually the source from which all love is burning. You almost see in this imagery that God's flame, that eternal and ever-churning force of love. In fact, I have to get Trinitarian here and say, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In perichoresis, in the ever evolving and intimate dance of love, in which all three co co-inhabitate the other and yet remain distinctive in each of their persons. That love, that Trinitarian dance, is the furnace that keeps the very fire of love burning, so that whenever you or I reach our hand out and touch a flame, we feel through the potential of love, whatever love we are reaching for. We feel the connectedness that that love has to the God of the universe, to the God who created us, to the maker of heaven and earth, to the God of Jesus Christ, whose flame leaped from the cross out and transformed the substance of the earth, whose flame through the cross was in fact fiercer than death itself, whose strength of love in coming down to us culminated in the resurrection of the body. And now, even now, that love as you and I reach out and as we love one another, as we love our spouses, we love our families, as we sense love around us when we go to touch that flame, that flame is what burned for us in Christ and even now wants to consume and transform us. If only we would let its flame touch our own hearts. The Song of Songs is reminding us what the epistles of John would also proclaim, that God is love. God is love. Love is God. You cannot know God if you do not know love. You will not find love if you do not find God. And here, here, the power and the potential of love is given to us to remind us that for all of the pain in love that you have experienced, all of the pain of love that your story contains. You will not escape your need for love because love is what God is offering to you through his son, Jesus Christ. So whatever your temptation is around sex, to set sex to the side because you've been burned by it, to avoid sex entirely, to keep chasing and eating sex, to keep reaching out to touch that flame. What I've been trying to offer you through this study, what the Song of Songs has been proclaiming, is that that flame will always find its source in Yahweh. And until you return to its source, you will never escape your need for God's flame. This is it. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the invitation of Christianity. This is, in some ways, the invitation of sex itself, to come to know God. To come to be reunited with the flame of God. To come press into this vulnerable and terrifying act of drawing near the heat of God. And yet, it is also the critique of Christianity against any other attempt, against any other counterfeit God, any other idol that you will chase or pursue, any sexual expressiveness, any identity you attempt to hold apart from God, it's going to be burned up and consumed. Because the only flame that remains is, in fact, the flame of God as God's love burns for you, and as you have a choice of how you will approach, how you will draw near, or how you will resist the power of God's flame. I'm, of course, humbled here that love is not safe, that love is not containable, that I myself will be consumed, that I have only begun to taste the fruits of love in my relationship with the beloved. I mean, when I hear the power and potential of what's being offered here, I know I, I have only begun to see, to feel, to touch this kind of love, but I'm compelled to want more of this love when I hear only love can defeat the powers of death. Only love can burn with the kind of passion and purpose and desire that I know I long to experience and that I know I was created for. Only love. Verse 7 is going to finish off the image. I think it's a fitting, beautiful come down from the mountaintop. In Hebrew poetry, the chiasm of structured thought often means that the most important point is going to come in the middle. And what's happening around that most important point is sort of further clarification around what the poet was trying to say. And so in verse seven, they're going to expound, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it out. If man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Isn't that beautiful? The sense in which water itself, the great antithesis to fire, the poet says, is never going to be able to stop this flame of love. And of course, wealth, the one great allure next to sex and power that always seems to tempt humanity. Wealth is going to do nothing in comparison to the potential of love to burn as a bright and passionate flame. So this really is it in our study of the Song of Songs. In fact, it would be fitting to end here. I'm tempted to end here. This is a great place to shut the book, to step back, and to move into a time of prayer and confession and desire before our God. Yet the Song of Songs doesn't end here, which kind of bemuses scholars. It's almost as if we have an epilogue. And sometimes Hebrew thought, you notice as you work through Hebrew texts, they don't always think like Westerners. They sometimes want to cushion things. They want to give you a little bit of space to ponder what's just been said. They don't want to end on the finale and have the screens go black as much as we love doing that in our cinematic mode. But instead, the Hebrew thought says you're going to need to wrestle with this a little bit. So let's give you a few final thoughts. As the songs moves through the end, you sense as strange as these last couple verses are going to be, you sense that the the poet is trying to close up a few open-ended questions. So one open-ended question from the beginning of the songs was what The woman's brothers were doing. Do you remember all the way back in episode one? The woman has these brothers. The brothers were her keeper of the vineyard. They seemed to keep her out in the sun. She was frustrated by these brothers. Well, the brothers are going to reappear here in in verses eight, nine, and 10. And it's going to give us one last chance to see how fiery, passionate, and incredible the lover is in her understanding of herself and in her pursuit of the beloved. So here's what it says in verse eight. We have a little sister, and she has no breast. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Now that understandably sounds strange to us. Like so many of the strangenesses, when you slow down, it does make sense. What happens is that these brothers are suggesting they have a sister who they see as not having any breasts, which is a symbolism to suggest she's not reached sexual maturity yet. So she's not herself in a place to marry or to enter into relationship with the beloved. So they, out of concern, asking what shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for, they intend to build a wall a wall around her, literally to keep others out, to protect the battlements of this woman. And if she is a door, suggesting that there is a place for entry and exit, quite euphemistically, but just also relationally, what's taking place in the woman, then they intend to enclose her. And close the door with boards of cedar. No one's coming in and no one's coming out. There's an understandableness here, maybe I, I tend to not be overly sympathetic to the brothers. I think I see them somewhat negatively but you could make the argument that the brothers here are just being protective of their sister they're thinking about integrity they're thinking about desire to keep her guarded and safe so that her marriage can be pure yeah i love here how the woman responds and i think we're meant to hold in our minds we're at the end of the songs here she has already gone on the journey of love And if there's been any villains throughout the songs, it's those who intend to disrupt and interfere with love. And so whatever the purity of these brothers' intentions, they are not working alongside the search for intimacy that the lover and the beloved have been on together. So the lover here is going to have a little bit of sass. She says, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Mm. She gives the push back to them. She claps back, if you will, that she has in fact been a wall. She didn't need their wall. She already was a wall. She already is mature. Her breasts were like towers. She already is mature. And in his eyes, in the beloved's eyes, she is the one who both, the Hebrew has this ambiguity, that she either finds peace In her Solomon, in her man of peace, the love she experiences with the beloved brings out peace, or she's the one who offers peace. She is Shulamite. She's the woman of peace who is bringing peace through her presence alongside the beloved. Isn't that great? Those three verses to me are one of the B-sides that playfully but wonderfully draws out this search for intimacy that the lover has been on and continues to elevate her as someone for us to inhabit. Yet the songs is not done. Let's talk about verse 11 and 12. Let me read you these two. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He led out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred you notice at the very end there, the English is choppy. These are the two verses where Solomon has once more resurfaced. You may not care much about Solomon. I keep trying to mention Solomon because I know for so many of us, we were told these are the songs of Solomon. Solomon wrote these songs. These songs are about Solomon. And while Solomon shows up three times in the songs, this is the third of three times, what scholars have always wrestled with is that Solomon is neither fully positive nor fully neutral in the songs. Instead, Solomon seems to be this symbol that's being used whenever some deeper imagery is needing to be referenced. So earlier, when we talked about the royal wedding and the palaquin, the litter of Solomon in chapter 3, we were clearly using this positive sense in which all of Solomon's grandeur, all of Solomon's bounty, and even the richness with which Solomon connotes an abundance of love through the many marriages he had for all of the dangers and catastrophe that they would eventually bring on him. That's the image that is being sourced in drawing Solomon into chapter 3. Yet here, the image that Solomon is being sourced to offer is clearly a negative image of a man who has too much wealth and too many wives and in the abundance needs to be restrained, needs to be pushed out, left to his own devices so that the sacredness, the delight that takes place between the lover and her beloved, between the beloved and the lover is going to be protected and allowed to flourish. So Solomon, Solomon has so many vineyards, he's paying people to attend to them, to keep for them. And the vineyard is clearly meant to have some sexual connotation as it has throughout the whole Song of Songs. We're probably meant to get a jab towards Solomon at his harem the the bounty of women that he kept as his concubines and wives and in contrast it's unclear if the woman as lover or the man as beloved is speaking but it would seem to be that either one is noting in contrast to Solomon that my vineyard my very own is before me my one vineyard you o Solomon may have the thousand everyone who's collecting money from you to keep your vineyard they can have their 200 It's kind of an ambiguous piece in the Hebrew poetry. We're just going to leave that to the side. But clearly the point here in 11 to 12 is that Solomon has not yet been fully refuted and addressed in this Song of Songs. And so they are pushing Solomon to the side and saying, you keep yours. We have our one vineyard of love to cherish and to protect. It's the final call out, if you will, in the Song of Songs to Solomon. It's the final defense in the Song of Songs for protecting and cherishing the one vineyard over spreading love out to many fields. It's going to culminate in two final verses that give us our third and final image. Here's the last two. Song of Songs is going to end this way. This is verse 13. O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Now, your Bible might have the man as a speaker here, it might have the woman. Again, it's really hard to tell, but the sense I lean with is that the man is speaking. This could, of course, also be the woman. But if the man is speaking, he's speaking to the woman who's dwelling in the gardens. She is waiting in the garden of love. Or you could reverse this just as easily to say the woman is looking for the beloved who's dwelling in the garden. There are companions listening for your voice. It's hard to say. Are these companions friends, those who you're keeping around you, those who are your acquaintances, or are these companions threats to love? Are they ones who distract or potentially even fellow suitors who are pressing up against the intimacy and protection of their love? But whatever the case is for these companions, in the poetic openness of this closing refrain, the beloved is going to say, Let me hear your voice. Let me hear you speak. Let me hear you beckon me. And that's why then the songs is going to close with the voice of the lover. And she's going to say this Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. That's it. That's how the songs closes. The songs does not, interestingly, close with a scene of reunion. But it rather closes with an invitation, a beckoning for the Beloved to once more draw near, even as the Beloved says, will you call out to me? Will you speak? Now, if we've leaned heavily into the human plane, I mentioned the, the layers in the first reading, the layers of poetry, wow, what beautiful poetic images, the human sexual relationship as we're listening to what the songs is teaching us about the relationship of the Lover and the Beloved. This final layer is where I want to close this, the layer of God and us. And many scholars have noted that it almost is surprising, even in Hebrew poetry, that the songs doesn't end with sexual union. It doesn't end with the lover and beloved together, but rather ends with the separation and the openness of longing, longing for love to be restored and reunited again. Isn't this image that if love always leans, love always burns. Love, in the closing of the songs, always longs. It's always open-ended. It's always asking for more. It's always beckoning us onward. If love has been the source and the power that has been transforming us through the songs, if it's been the beacon that's pointing us towards God, then love always continues to long for more until we are finally reunited with our beloved again. I think it's fair to say the songs is closing with a theological point. You are going to long for love until you are restored to God. You will never stop longing for love. If you look at your marriage, even the best marriage, if you look at any fairy tale, at some point, no matter how hard we try to cover up our tracks by noting a fairy tale ending with a kiss or with the couple in paradise or with the couple holding each other's hands as they near towards death. The reality is love is open-ended until our longing can be completed. And this is where the best theologians like Augustine are saying, we were created with a longing for God. That longing will not be satisfied until we are restored to God. C.S. Lewis would say, we were created for a place that we have not yet known and so it's only going to be when we can finally reach heaven when we can finally reach not the ethereal heaven of the next life but the new heavens and the new earth of our world restored our bodies restored our relationships restored to union full reunion with god full intimacy with god that is the only place our longing will ever be satiated And so the Song of Songs has to end open-ended. It has to end with this invitations, this beckons to come, to keep looking, to keep stirring, to keep speaking, to keep desiring, to keep longing for God. Because if you lose that longing, if at any point you grow satisfied with where you are, if at any point you grow satisfied with the loves that you have settled with in your life, then you will miss You will miss the deep and passionate stirring that God has placed before you with his flame of love. So do not stop longing for it. Do not stop listening for the beloved's voice. Do not stop calling out that God would come back to you, that the Lord your beloved would make haste, to make haste to draw near to you. One of my favorite insights offered by Robert Jensen's theological commentary on the Song of Songs is that he notes there's one other book in the Bible that ends somewhat similarly to the Song of Songs, and that's the book of Revelation, the very close of the scriptures, where even as the story has been told of where we are going, of the wedding feast that we will consummate with our bridegroom, what the revelation ends with is the bride calling out, saying, come, Lord Jesus, make haste. And so too here in the Song of Songs, whenever we encounter love, we encounter a longing that requires us to beckon God to make haste and draw near to us once more. This is the invitation of the Song of Songs. So as we close out this study, may you learn to lean on the beloved. May you learn to trust and to depend, to put the costliness of your weight upon him may you learn to burn for the beloved may the very flame of god be the passion and energy and desire and beauty that generates your own flame of love that you extend out to this world that every time you touch the flame of love in your own life you would see its extended connection to the source of love in god and may you always long may the depths of desire stir within you so that the beauty of love the beauty of sex would never satisfy you in and of itself but that it would point you point you back to the god of all love who in jesus christ has made full his love for you and for me by conquering death and offering us himself This has been The Burning Word with John Perrine, and until next time, grace and peace.